Welcome to a, another episode of the Tribe Exchange. We're very excited today to have as our guest Dr. John Oakes. Uh, John holds a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry from the University of Connecticut, a dual PhD in Chemistry and Physics from the University of Colorado. Uh, John has served as a minister and a teacher in the church, speaking in over 80 countries and 60 universities around the world, uh, as well as a, pr- a professor in several universities, including UCSD, uh, Mesa College, and Marion College over the past nearly 40 years, until retiring from his professorship in two- 2018 and taking on a full-time ministry position, pastoring a church in Bakersfield, uh, California, <laughs> Bakersfield Church of Christ. John has authored 14 books, including Is There a God?, Questions of Science and the Bible, uh, Reasons for Belief, a Handbook of Evidence, uh, of Christian Evidences, and three volumes with a fourth to come of church history entitled The Christian Story, uh, which is going to be the topic of our conversation today. We're going to discuss church history and all things around that. John, great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Hey, John. Um, so, John, what we'd like to do is just to kind of at the beginning of, of every episode is just get a little bit of background from our guest. We we're hoping you could just uh, share share with us your journey to becoming a follower of Jesus. Okay. Well, I grew up, um, my family was part of a traditional denomination, Episcopalian Church. I was... Um, the guy wearing the robes and you know, carrying the cross around and and in the church youth group, but I didn't believe in God, so that didn't um, lead to me becoming a Christian, to say the least. So I went off to college. I was just a pot smoking, you know, knucklehead, and then uh, came to believe in God partly through my exposure to science. I was a chemistry major, and um, so started you know whatever back in the 70s right so um started my little religious search or journey was more interested in eastern religion buddhism hinduism anyway came to the university of colorado one of my students uh had the audacity to invite me to church uh it was a boulder church of christ it was back in the day uh, uh tom brown tom and kelly brown were leading the campus ministry there i was baptized in December 1978, 42 and a half years ago. Wow. Um, I wow. finished my PhD six years later, got married, moved to Spokane, Washington, uh, worked as a professor, uh, moved down to San Diego, worked for the church for a while, got fired, <laughs> went back into teaching for about the next 30 years, and here I am. Great. And here you are on the Tribe Exchange. You've arrived. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. Thanks. You for have arrived. For- this is it. I forgot to introduce uh, my wife, Rachel, who really is the genesis of this episode. She has um, poured through the first two volumes of the church oh, story, the Christian story. And uh, I think we've ordered number three already. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, maybe you could share a little bit for us. Uh, you know, what was some of your initial interest? What, like, why, why this interest in church history? Because... Um, you know, it's not something that we think about often. And I think for many of us today, we believe we're experiencing a lot of new things uh, that hopefully uh, we'll unpack that a little bit, that we're actually not experiencing that many new things, right? But for you, I'm, I'm curious, why the, the interest in church history? Well, 
Uh, partly because I'm just interested in history in general. I love history. I, I would have been a history major if I thought you could have gotten a job being an historian. <laughs> um, and even as, as a baby Christian, I remember uh, we, we had an actual library at our church building, you know, and uh, I think I was pretty much the only one who used it. And I probably read almost every volume in there. And I remember reading three volumes set on restoration history, hmm. uh, um, kind of the the book of restoration history by a guy named West. And uh, I realized that our background in the churches of Christ is to be ahistorical, to believe that we actually have no history. So, you know, like, for example, if a lot of churches of Christ uh, in America, if you, if you go uh, to the building, they have the little cornerstone, they have the little cornerstone, it says Church of Christ founded 33 AD. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, to me, uh, somebody who's interested in history, I, I recognize that as bogus immediately because every group has a history. Right. So, you know, but anyway, I've always been interested in history. I'm interested in Babylonian history, Persian history, Greek, Chinese. You know, everywhere I go, I read the book on the history of the people there. I like to know their history better than they do. Um, but I think history is helpful to understand why we're doing what we're doing. Right. A, a lot of times we think what we're doing is because it's in the Bible, but that's not even true at all. We're doing it because somebody that we never heard of started doing it for reasons that we don't even understand. And, uh, and that's not necessarily completely bad, but being unaware of why you're doing what you're doing, that's just, to me, that's a big problem. Yeah. No, I agree. I well, what turned me on so much to the book and kept me reading, kept me engaged, and kept me buying the volumes was I was Catholic growing up, um, more like an Easter Christmas kind of Catholic. I didn't really come to faith until my late 20s. So I had a lot of holes in understanding Christianity, Catholicism. Um, I became a Christian, got baptized but didn't really know why so many people did the things they did. And I was judgmental of a lot of different religions and sects, not really understanding, you know, the Bible says this so clearly, why do people do this? Or why is it so hard for people to change traditions or let go of old doctrines that are incorrect if the Bible clearly states this? Right. And as I was reading your book, it was really eye-opening for me to understand the genesis of a lot of those traditions, a lot of those religions. Um, so I know it was, it's educated me a lot and I feel like it's opened up my heart to be a lot more compassionate and understanding and even giving me, um, I guess just the knowledge, the information to, to be able to reach more people, to be able to have conversations with the different people that I study the Bible with. Um, so what do you think about that in terms of how much history should we delve? How important is it for us to educate ourselves as new Christians, especially Christians in our movement and um, the value of that? Well, you know, like I said, if, if we are not aware of why we're doing what we're doing, uh, we're, you know, <laughs> we're bound to make mistakes that we don't need to make. Um, you know, there's the famous, those who do not uh, know the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them that, you know, this is the standard thing, but it's true. Um, and I'll just, there's so many examples, for example, 
as a movement, we have downplayed the role of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, we're, I think, in fact, I think as a movement, we've discovered that. I think we've done a pretty good job of moving back in the right direction. But the question is, how did that happen? I mean, where did that come from? So Alexander Campbell, you have to understand who Alexander Campbell was, what he was reacting against. Um, and, and just so many other tendencies that we have, um, you know, I think understanding why we are that way can help. I mean, it's just use the analogy of people. I mean, a lot of stuff we do as adults, they're, they're just stuff that happened to us as a kid, you know, and, uh, you know, I called it the Christian story, the, the series, the Christian story for a reason, because I believe that we are part of a story of a broader story. We need to understand that. What buttons are being pushed now in the conversation, especially specifically in the United States that, would be dealt with much, much better if we had, if we knew history a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. Especially well, for example, history. we come from a restoration background. Okay. And uh, we come from a biblicist, uh, strong biblicist background. So we, we are therefore are doctrinally oriented as opposed to, you know, watch your life in your doctrine. Well, you know, doctrine, and so, um, so that's one of the buttons because as we move from modernism to postmodernism, and the postmodern is not that interested in doctrine, they could hardly care less about that. So uh, it, it kind of scares the older generation as we um, uh, move into a, a, a little bit of a more postmodern perspective on Christianity in general. And there's, you know, the, the women's issue coming up, that, that kind of falls into that. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to not be very good at finding um, um, a, a position between two extremes. We're not very good at that. Right. Well, I was going to say, I saw a lot of that as reading your book between the Eastern and the Western churches and their ways, right. right? So the Western church seemed to be more doctrinal. Is that right? And the Eastern was more yes, torrential. Yeah. I mean, Rome was into law and Greek, Greece was into philosophy. Philosophy. So, so you it's want not philosophy? a new problem, essentially. No, no, yeah. of course not. How how do we how do we push against postmodernism, and how does it push against us specifically? Okay. You know, seeing the church as sort of contained within the greater community, uh, as opposed to being separate from the community, I think is something that postmodernists are going to be more interested in. Um, seeing God as working in the world, not just through the church. I think that's another thing that I think uh, the postmodernists would be more in tune with, which I think is actually more biblical. Um, there's a whole range of things. I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't given you the best possible answer there, but no, that's helpful. No, I think that was very good. I think, I think that was very, very good. Thank you. The, the pendulum swings too, because the the Greek churches or the eastern churches rather did really well for an extended period of time where the western churches are really str struggling even though they were looked down upon right as intellectually inferior but because they were so connected experientially they yeah. they they did so well they they stayed connected and, and they thrived 
Um, and then it swung and it was yeah. the Western churches, right? That reigned supreme. And yeah. And now maybe we're seeing that, I guess it's a question. <laughs> we're just seeing like what time, to your point earlier, history repeats itself, that the pendulum is now swinging the other way. And we're asking, or people are asking for more of Where's a, this going kind of a thing? Yeah, for yeah. more of a experience yeah. God and experience it in community and not so much of the doctrine and not so much of the rules. Um, like we're just seeing yeah. history repeat and itself. American Christians assume that we are the center of, of the right. Christian so. world, which is not true anymore, not even close. Africa is the center of gravity of the Christian world today. And the average American is completely oblivious to that. I mean, they have no concept of that. Back yeah, in the, I mean, the, ex in the, the explosion of the African, the, of the explosion of faith in Africa is really remarkable. And it, it, you, I, I think the oblivious part of, it really resonates with me because I've spoken to people who are doing just the Holy Spirit is guiding the church in Africa in ways that we probably haven't dreamt of in, in probably centuries, I think, maybe. And when they look at us, they are essentially they're sending up, they're sending missionaries from Africa to evangelize the United States. Um, that's the dynamic. That's the that's where it's going. Oh yeah, and that's just I the beginning it, right? of a much larger trend over time. Yeah. Well, they're they're yeah. in Africa. They're beginning to see the United States a little bit like we see Europe. You know, as mm -hmm. right. Christianity being relatively decrepit. I think they're probably a little bit too critical. But uh, honestly, that's where it's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, John. With kind of in light of history of the church, and with you know our current climate and the increase of secularism here in the West and certainly in America um, mm -hmm. and kind of the sharp decline that we're seeing in church attendance, the increase of the nons, like those who just do not affiliate with any kind of um, religious organization. I thought it was the nuns. The non, yeah. <laughs> if Isn't only. The no, nuns? There's the not, nuns. There, maybe there's the an nuns. increase in nuns. I don't know, but there's definitely right. an increase in nons, N-O-N-E's. Um, and, and a lot of criticism towards organized church, at least in the West, you know, there's the, the wave of deconstructionism that's just kind of it's attacking church tradition and leadership and organization. Yeah. And we, we recognize kind of what you've said already, this is not a new experience for the church, that the pendulum swung. But from what you know of history, uh, what can we learn from, from our, our history, all those pendulum swings that might help us navigate uh, now in the church, uh, as we, as we try to work through this going forward? Oh, a lot of things. Uh, one thing we can learn is that, uh, the church that's, uh, the church that is being Christ-like is countercultural. And so, um, you know, the tendency, especially of conservative Christians is to think, oh, this is this terrible thing. Our culture is becoming more, um, secular. But uh, the church works well in those situations. I mean, think about the church in the first few centuries right. where the stark difference between Christ and the world was so clear. So, um, so a lot of people are lamenting, uh, deeply lamenting that our, our society is becoming less Christian. Uh, and of course, there's, there's good reason for that, but... Uh, honestly, the church can do very well under conditions where um, we are not necessarily part of the mainstream. 
I agree. And, you know, I, I, I have a question. I, th I think you're absolutely right on church history. One of the benefits of understanding church history is that Christianity started, Christians started as outsiders. That's for and sure. they became so impactful and influential that they became insiders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once you become insiders, you start dominating and, and shaping and actually losing Christ in the midst of the whole thing and being driven by other things. So then eventually what happens is you become an outsider again. <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> it goes that's, back and forth. That's what I call the Christian story. And so we just need to be aware of the times and how God is moving at any one time. Uh, being understanding that probably actual faithful disciples of Jesus will be a minority in any situation. Yeah. But wh where is the Holy Spirit working right now? And how can we go there? How can we be there? Be part of it? Yeah. Yeah, you say something in your book that I really liked. I actually reposted it on Facebook. But basically what you were saying, and I'm going to paraphrase, was that we can't, it's not the outside world that's going to destroy the church. It's the inside. It's the infighting that happens inside the church that divides the unity and affects the unity of mm -hmm. Christ. And it's, it's almost encouraging to see it in that perspective that as the world outside the church becomes less and less Christian, it is giving us an opportunity to follow Christ, um, to be that light, um, to fight against, to put, I guess, in confidence that it's not the outside world that's going to deteriorate the church. It's, right. it's from within, it's us. So what a great call or what a great um, opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. yeah, and I believe there's going to be revival in Europe in, you know, in the next 50 years as well. Uh, history tells me that. Yeah. Well, even, you know, you, you're, you're talking about what's happening in Africa right now, right? And I think yeah. in your book, you, you reference the, the inception of the North African, you know, churches and how it failed because it became uh, a church of the party and not a church of the people. Like it immediately kind of married mm -hmm. to the, the political state of time. And it, yeah. yeah. The story of the church in North Africa, other than Egypt, is it's very instructive. For sure. Yeah. Well, maybe you could, I mean, it can't, what, it, what other it, lessons do we learn from that, that moment in history? Well, yeah, all kinds of lessons. So uh, really the church of the East is one story. The church in North Africa is another story. The church in Egypt is still another story. The, you know, the church in the, the Latin West and the Greek East, they're all a different story. Um, in uh, North Africa, it, around Carthage, there were really three groups. There were the Berbers, the, the, the local aristocrats, the Carthaginians, and the outside Romans. And the church made the terrible mistake of associating themselves with the outsider Romans. Uh, and, uh, but there was another group that actually was local. And um, unfortunately, Augustine decided to completely persecute them and essentially try to destroy their church, which he did largely. And so uh, when the Muslims came through in the, uh, the seventh century, uh, the church was a, the church of the hierarchy and the, the wealthy. And so it, it was completely destroyed. It, it never penetrated into the countryside. And that, I think that's it's quite thing. similar in in sub-Saharan Africa because it came with the colonial powers, right? Yes. So, but, and I think the story the story of 
of the um, of faith penetrating into actual population is very different from country to country, from country to country, and a lot of it actually depends on what was the dominant stream of Christianity associated with colonial powers. One of the strengths of the Churches of Christ is that it pervaded into the countryside, not just the cities. And one of the weaknesses of the Churches of Christ is it, it could it had zero impact in urban areas, virtually zero. Uh, and of course, we're, we're kind of, uh, we like to think of ourselves as an urban movement, but really we're a, a, a middle class suburban movement. One of the reasons why we moved even here to Austin was that was an intentional move for the Flores. They saw that, I think they referred to it as the donut effect, that the, the yeah. church may meet in the city, but all the members live, you know, somewhere on the outskirts of the city. And so they really intentionally um, planted and moved to and um, encourage members to live in proximity to the city, which many, many of the members here do. Yeah, we do. That, 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 and it's yeah. a sacrifice. It's very intentional. Because obviously you get more bang, bang for your buck if you go to the to the donut part, you know. So you have well, to you almost say, look, they, we're doing this on purpose. This is intentional. Yeah. You may get more contribution on the donut, but you, um, I think, lose the Christian, um, you know, the Jesus ministry <laughs> yeah. by abandoning the poor, the needy, the uh, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess shifting back to church history, um, yeah. you know, one of the things that I think stands out as you look at history is, and I guess it's really the history of people, there is this kind of continual draw that happens in the story of God, and it goes back to Israel, and I think it even happens now in the churches, it's always kind of happened, that we want to appoint some sort of figurehead to lead us. Uh, and we see that through the history of the the bishops and the kings and kind of these popes. the popes and the authoritative figures that um, began to take over you know the churches and and it got into all kinds of uh, funky places. And yet we know at the same time biblical leadership matters and there's a role for leadership in the church. Um, I think with all the scrutiny that's coming up against leadership right now from kind of a postmodern perspective mm. uh, and towards the church, um, how, do, how do we have both? How do we be, you know, a church where there is leadership, um, there, there is authoritative positions uh, within the church, um, and yet we're not, we don't fall into that trap that the church so many times has of, of looking for a figurehead, a leaning too heavily on that? Yeah, that's just about the hardest question, practical question for the church that you could ask, honestly. Yeah. Because you can the history of God's us. people is that uh, without solid, godly leadership, God's people just always do terribly. <laughs> and yet, of course, there's the, the, the danger of people following a person instead of following God. So that again, that's that's that that never ending tension that will exist mm -hmm. in any healthy church uh, between, um, you know, looking towards a person rather than looking towards God. But I, I know this, that committees do not uh, lead churches that have impact. It just it just doesn't work that way. 
uh, the church without strong leadership is a church that's not going anywhere. How, how can you go somewhere if somebody's not leading? Hmm. Uh, like Deborah said, when when the princes of, of Israel take the lead and the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. And I agree with that. Um, you know, I tend to, to lead a little bit more towards the fact that we need strong visionary leadership at the very absolute minimum in the local church. We need visionary leadership. Somebody's got to uh, help people know where they're going. If we don't know where we're going, then we're going nowhere, which is not a good place to be going to. But how, how do uh, the whole thing between the congregational approach and the hierarchical approach, this is, I mean, if there is anything that's part of the never-ending story of Christianity is, is how to do, um, you know, are we going to be Episcopalian? Are we going to be Presbyterian? Are we going to be congregational? Are we going to have a pope? And, uh, you know, good question. <laughs> What's encouraging, though, is, and this has come from reading your books, because I've seen just the way that us Christians, how we've pretty much disgraced the church from the beginning till now. Um, but what, what reigns true is that Jesus and his kingdom continues right. and marches yeah. on no matter what we've done and what direction we've taken it with leadership, what type of leadership, where the centralized power was, what sacraments we followed, um, the crusades, I mean, some of the atrocities that we committed in the name of Christ and yet Christianity to this day reigns strong is really encouraging. It's really faith building. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah. Well, I guess a good question from that is, you know, we tend to look at history and we do one of two things. We either criticize it heavily or we romanticize it, right? We, we, we figure out all the threads that fit our narrative to make us mm -hmm. the yeah. right group or the right way or whatever, right? Um, and maybe we could start with, with the critics. What are the critics missing as they look back at history and they go, mm. man, this is just atrocity after atrocity, four crusades, like just all this stuff that happened. Um, what are the critics missing about how the kingdom prevailed throughout history? Uh, there are periods in history where it seems like they're not missing anything, honestly. Uh, That's true. You know, if you're looking at Christianity in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th century, yeah, uh, being cynical would probably be not completely inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, I think what they're missing is that uh, people are being saved at, at, at any time. Uh, Elijah said, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And God says, well, Elijah, actually, uh, how many did he say he had in Israel? Whose knees have 7,000 or whatever it was, I can't remember. I'm 60. I forget details like that. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, look at history. If it were not for Christianity, uh, slavery would exist everywhere in the world today. If, if it were not for Christianity women would be in a role of, uh, you know, a, a terrible, you know, okay. dominant role of men everywhere in the world. If it were not for Christianity, there'd be no science. There'd be no human rights. There'd be, you know, what has Christianity given to the world? I mean, uh, you know, if, if we do a worldview, you know, looking at a worldview perspective, 
Um, and even the atheists, so most of the things they value as good, they have because of Christianity. That's true. Um, so, um, you know, you go to Buddhist countries and who's doing most of the benevolent work in those countries? It's Christians. You go to um, Hindu, you go to India, who's doing most of the benevolent work in India? Uh, it's, it's Christian groups. So. A Christianity is something to be proud of, uh, but also we have to be honest, uh, you know. Yeah, I was I was listening to a debate a few uh, watching a debate a few years ago, and, the, you know, the, the debate was over religion just more broadly. And, and the, the atheist guy was saying religion has messed everything up. And, uh, you know, we've tried the uh, godless, um, you know, government method, uh, you know, like Pol Pot, uh, Red China, Soviet Russia, um, France during the French Revolution. It, it's not been a good experiment. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Jesus has had a positive influence on this world. And who, who doesn't think that is not paying good attention? Yeah. But anyway, Christians well, have they- done some really stupid things that's for sure i mean it's it is extremely embarrassing one one of the suggestions i want to make is that we as christians not sort of say that wasn't me because that was me uh for example i see i see daniel in daniel 9 where he's talking about why israel went into captivity instead of saying they did this he said we did this so as christians i think we need to own the crusades Mm. And we need to own these terrible things that have happened as part of what we are and what we've done. No, I agree. Because outsiders aren't going to believe it, first of all. And second of all, you know, how can we, if we don't acknowledge that's part of our history, then guess what's going to happen? (laughs) You know, look what happened to our country in the last few years. I mean, you know, Yeah. but I better not go there. Yeah. Well, John, uh, I, 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 I was brought up in a in a socialist country, right? A godless uh, place yeah. where religion was considered widely as the opium to, for the people. You know, words of Karl Marx. So I can even firsthand confirm that the, if you remove God from the ecosystem, so to say, from the cultural ecosystem, um, the, the, it's just disastrous. It really is, um, and. And to me, as a, as a as someone who you know, I'm I'm the son of two Marxists, right? Who became a Christian, who became a church leader. Um, I can tell you, uh, God saved me. God changed me. Um, and I've I've experienced my my fair share of church trauma as well. Um, but um, it was it was we as as Rachel said, we mess mess it up. But Jesus reigns supreme. Amen. And that's sort of that's the tension, right? We mess it up. We mess it up generation after generation, uh, but Jesus reigns supreme. Yeah, luckily we have the Bible. You know that that definitely kind of can pull us back in. Um, but here's you know again, history helps answer some of the questions that the Bible may not completely, absolutely, solidly answer for us. Right. You know, I, uh, again, kind of shifting a little bit, 
topically, but within church history, one of the things that stands out is we tend to think of the influencers and the leaders of the church mm. as kind of these these type A gregarious, you know, extroverts that that take hold and and charge ahead. Uh, but one of the things you talk about through your books is the influence of the contemplatives of the the monasteries and the monks and the um, the apologists and the ascetics. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to that. How how have the contemplatives shifted the course and the and how have they really influenced the church over the history well if you're talking about the eastern church you can't even understand the eastern church without understanding the contemplatives and the um monks and all that kind of stuff because they are the heart and always have been the heart of the eastern church um if there was ever a time in history where that was ignored in America in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. I mean, so we're, we're kind of like an anomaly hmm. because, um, you know, modernism uh, uh, believes that only rational thought is, is determinative of truth. And uh, that's the complete opposite of the contemplative experience. Um, I, I, I just think um you know spiritual disciplines I, I, as as a fellowship as as a the icoc fellowship i think we're becoming more in tune with spiritual disciplines and able to maybe learn from teresa of avila or john sure. of the cross or these people um i don't think we uh necessarily need to have contemplative communities uh you know of people going off into the wilderness and and uh, that's all they do. I, I don't think we need to have monks and nuns. Uh, I think that was a bit of an aberration. It's a long lasting aberration. But uh, by the way, my, my sister is a nun, just so you know, she's an Orthodox nun. She's an Eastern Orthodox nun. So we have interesting conversations. Uh, but yeah, I, I just say there's a lot we can learn from these yeah. people. Well, it's interesting that you make you make that point, because I do feel like as I've journeyed into some of that in my own spiritual journey, I feel like uh, from a position of teaching or preaching as I do, if I, if I include anything that has to do with some of that uh, spiritual discipline and the contemplative approach to God, um, it's like new teaching for many people. It feels uh, yeah, fresh absolutely. and like, whoa, where's this been? And, you know, and yet we look back and it's, been there all along it's just we haven't really we haven't focused on it or we haven't made it a part of our um our our experience as christians in our relationship with god and um it has so that's for sure yeah <laughs> you're not exaggerating there that's for sure yeah yeah again we don't i i wouldn't suggest that we swing the pendulum too far in that direction but uh we certainly can move in that direction from where we are that's that is for sure yeah John, one of my favorite um, quotes that you included in your book, um, I copied it down too because I really like it. I'm not used to being quoted. This is kind of weird for this me. This actually but... isn't you. You quoted somebody, but oh, okay. <laughs> it's still yes. one of my favorite quotes in your oh. book. But it's in your book. But it's in your book um, oh. by Rice Haggard. Yeah. In Essentials, Unity. In Non-Essentials, Liberty. 
and all things yeah. charity. Mm -hmm. I loved that. And I wrote it down for myself to something to continually go back to and remember. Um, how can we apply this practically in our history? Oh, that's a great one. Uh, just, uh, probably for the audience here, um, Rice Haggard is from the Christian Connection. We're talking um, uh, seven, uh, the very late 1700s, early 1800s. This is the absolute beginning of the restoration movement in America. Um, and so uh, basically the very first people in America were saying, we're just Christians. We're not going to be a denomination. Um, yeah, I think that's a great principle for, for anybody uh, at any time, anywhere in, in Christian history is trying to understand, uh, trying to remember what the essentials are and seeking unity based on those things. There's this tension, and it's an inevitable tension, and church history reveals that again and again and again and again, which is, are we seeking unity or are we seeking to restore primitive Christianity? And, and where do we fall in that, in that range? And uh, Rice Haggard, uh, he was more of a unity guy than uh, a restoration guy, for sure. And... Uh, but anyway, the lesson from Bryce Haggard, I think, is we individually and as a body of Christians, we need to constantly remind ourselves what are the essentials and be willing to stand firm and, you know, to the point even of church discipline yeah. on those mm -hmm. fundamentals. And the things that fall outside of that, we need to just have a lot of grace. I think that would affect how we think about what's going on with the whole women's question, women's issue question. Uh, it's yeah. You know, you said you, you made a distinction there between the trying to aim for the primitive mm -hmm. church and being unified. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit for us. Cause that's, that's an interesting well, juxtaposition for me. So for example, what stone and Campbell did were, were they principally about, being Christians only and uniting all Christians in one body? Or were they principally about uh, restoring the Christianity of the New Testament? And, and history says you can't do both of those super, super well at the same time. You, you have to, you have to, first of all, you have to be well, well aware of where you are in that, but also uh, there's, there's this natural tension. So, uh, Alex and uh, Barton Stone was more unity, less restoration. And Alexander Campbell was more restoration and less unity. And the miracle is that the two formed a, a movement that came together. That, By the way, that's volume four, so you can't buy it's that coming. one yet. Yeah. yeah, it's coming. Well, I just want um, to understand what's the difference in aim there, you know, and, and how does that, how do they clash up against each other, I guess? <laughs> Because I feel like I've I've heard and I've kind of been raised up spiritually and probably have spoken as well to this that we're we're aiming for both at the same time and maybe I thought they were somewhat synonymous but what you're saying is that they're not definitely not yeah and so I want to understand that more not. because uh, let's say our goal is to read the New Testament and become what we see in the New Testament okay that sounds great okay but what what are the what is the content of the essentials? What what is essential? 
And I'm telling you, history says restorationists always, always become divisive, always mm. become exclusivistic and uh, and basically self-destruct. That's what happened with the Anabaptists. It's what happened with it, what's happened with the restoration movement uh, and so many other movements like that uh, throughout history. I, let, let me give you an example. Um, Lagarde Smith, have you heard of Lagarde Smith? He's a bit of a yes. rebel with the Church of Christ. He, uh, he wrote a book uh, on who's, called Who's My Brother? Oh, yeah. And he yep. was trying to help people to understand kind of what the limits of fellowship are. And it's a very Church of Christ perspective, you know, take it for what it's worth, but it's a pretty good book. And, um, and so I think we need to be aware who we consider a Christian. I mean, who, who do you think is a Christian? I, I don't know if we thought about that as carefully as, as we could. And who are we going to fellowship with? Who, who are we going to invite to our conferences? Who are we going to uh, bring in to teach us and, and help us to, you know, you know, how broadly do we go on that? And so we have to think about um, what we mean by being a New Testament church. What, what does that mean? Uh, in fact, is that even a goal that we should have to be a New Testament church? And I'm not saying it's not a goal we should have, but uh, you know we have to think about what do we even mean by that? Because mm -hmm. yeah. those are those can just be labels that we throw out there. Uh, but if, if you're trying to be a New Testament church, you have, have to understand that that means you're not a unity movement. That's what history tells me. John, uh, it has been a super helpful conversation. Uh, thank you for uh, for giving us a little slice of history in this time. Uh, Great. Where can where can people find out more about your work and what you're what you're producing? Uh, well, just um, IPI. Go to IPI, Illumination Publishers. Uh, you go to my website. Um, I've I've got about three thousand five hundred articles I've published there. There's a ton of material. It's not necessarily a lot of church history stuff there, but if you go to my website, you'll find hour, you know, probably 50 hours of material on church history that, you know, outlines, PowerPoints, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. And, but anyway, um, volume four of, uh, so the, the, the whole set should be complete, hopefully this summer. Uh, published uh, by um, maybe early 2022. Um, 15 years worth of research. I think there's some stuff there. I think be a good starting point for anybody. Fantastic. Can't wait I've to check it out. Fantastic. I've enjoyed reading them thus far. When you get to volume three, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that. then you're going to start to see modern Christianity forming in, in volume three. So that'll be important. Yeah. Yeah. John, thanks so That's much for exciting. being on the show with us. It's been uh, it's been a great conversation. Uh, look forward to doing it again sometime soon. See you all around. <laughs>